The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Just uh, two quick announcements. First of all, in the area of children's ministries, at TBC right now, we have 400 plus kids from uh, nursery through fourth grade only, and uh, we need about 100 volunteers per week to come alongside minister to our kids. So if you're willing to do that, if you'll uh, just go to our website and find things out, uh, that'll be there. Secondly, uh, there's a newcomer's brunch at our home. In a couple of weeks, we need you to RSVP, so we know how many prepare for, and also it is an opportunity uh, for adults only, so we provide childcare here at the church. Danny was telling me while we're praying that uh, just uh, be monitoring our website. We don't need uh, 3,000 people to rush up here because we'll be inundated with our people. So go to our website. There'll be a place to sign up where you can uh, come and minister and care for folks here. So uh, we'll do everything on the website. There'll be signups for you to come, uh, bring food, minister, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So let's, uh, let's be generous to folks who've lost everything. Having lived in New Orleans, grown up in New Orleans, and having had uh, aunts and uncles and my sister and her family having lost everything uh, multiple times, actually two times, uh, it's near and dear to my heart as well. Colossians chapter 3, your Bibles, your devices, if you'll turn uh, on your devices or your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I'm read verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this morning we're talking about a message I've entitled Uprooted. We're doing a four-week series on Colossians, and uh, last week we looked at what it means to be rooted in Christ, and this week we're going to look at some things that need to be uprooted. So uh, things that need to be uprooted, you think about your own yard, weeds, poison ivy, tree stumps, things that need to be uprooted. So I googled up uh, things that need to be uprooted, and uh, I I ran across a website that said uh, stumps uprooted by rednecks, okay? So... (laughs) If you want to have fun, there are like uh, 10 minutes of that, but I'm going to show you one 15-second clip. So uh, this is how some rednecks try and uproot stumps. Back it up real quick. Back it up real quick. Drive, hit it. You want to see it in slow motion? This is it in slow motion right here. There you go. By the way, I think that's a Mississippi license plate on that truck. <laughs> so uh, they tried to uproot that stump with their own idea, their own ingenuity, their own power, their own strength, and that uh, didn't work out too well, did it? So in Colossians chapter 3, what Paul's going to tell us, there are some things we need to uproot from our lives, things we need to get rid of. And the good news is this, we're not going to uproot with our own strength, our own power, our own ingenuity, our own ideas, but we are provided with everything we need to uproot that which needs to be uprooted. That's the great news. Everything we need to uproot these two things are two vice lists in Colossians chapter 3, and we'll look at those in a second. And the great news is this, everything we need to uproot that well has been given to us by God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you've got an outline, you can uh, look at it. It's uh, going to follow along pretty simply. First of all, things that need to be uprooted. We uproot these things, or we can uproot these things since we've been given a new position. We've been given both a new position and a new life. 
uh, Christ is sufficient. The Colossians 1 and 2 talks about the sufficiency of Christ. And now in chapter 3, uh, he begins to talk about our new position and our new life in Christ. And if you look at verse 1, it says, if then you have been raised up, literally since you have been raised up with Christ, what does it mean to be raised up with Christ? I mean, what does that mean? If you were to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, you would read this in chapter 2. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So what does it mean that we've been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places? So what we know is through the resurrection, when Christ was raised from the dead, he defeated sin and death. He, he would never die again. Death no longer had a claim on his life. Second, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Since we are in Christ, his resurrection from the dead is our resurrection from the dead. We are united in him. Paul in Romans chapter 5 wrote these words, If you have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so what we know is we have a new position. When God looks down upon us from heaven, he sees us as co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-alive in Christ. That's how he sees us. It's a position that we've been given, not, uh, not in, our, in our lives now, but ultimately in the heavenlies. But when he looks at us now, he does see it as co-crucified, co-resurrected with Christ. In fact, what we read in Galatians 2.20, in fact, let's read this verse together. This is one of the greatest verses in the scriptures. Read with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So it says we've been crucified with Christ. We have co-crucified, co-resurrected. I'm going to call this the resurrected life. We live the resurrected life because Christ is alive in us. He empowers us. And so when we talk about uprooting specific sins, it's not like the rednecks in the pickup truck from Mississippi that you just saw. Okay? It's not on your own ingenuity, your own power, your own ability, but it's Christ alive in us. I grew up playing baseball. And so uh, when, I, when we played baseball, you often use this when you play baseball, right? Now, that glove, when it's placed down there, is pretty lifeless, isn't it? I mean, that glove, you don't expect it to do anything. It's just a piece of leather, and it sits there and doesn't do anything. But when you put a hand in that glove, if you would put Jose Altuva's hand in that glove, or Carlos Correa's hand in that glove, or Elvis Andrews' hand in that glove, or Mike Trout's hand in that glove, it becomes a weapon in their hand. It becomes powerful. It, it, it does what it's meant to be. We are that glove. Before Christ, we are like, my wedding ring just got caught in there. There we go. We are dead. We are lifeless. We have nothing. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're hopelessly, helplessly lost. But when we come to faith, Christ makes us alive. And we function and accomplish and do the things he wants us to do, not on our own power, because that's the power that we have. But through his power... His power living in us. And then we are able to accomplish what it is he has made us to accomplish. We are able to uproot sin. We are able to live the resurrected life. We are able to defeat sin and death. Now, does that mean we're never going to sin? You can answer me. Does that mean we're never going to sin? No. You, you know my mantra after that. If you think you're sinless, give me two minutes with your spouse and we'll solve that issue real quickly. Okay. I mean, but when Christ is alive in us, we have the power to overcome sin. We will overcome death. We will die physically, but we will be alive, we'll be alive in his presence at that point in time. Now, the problem is, the problem is that we often live our lives dependent upon ourselves rather than him. We live, we live our lives dependent upon ourselves, powerless lives 
And that's why we struggle to live the spiritual life, struggle to resist temptation, struggle to walk in obedience. You've been given a new position, a new position in Christ. Not only do you have a new position, but you have a new life. Look at verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is also our life. And so not only have you been given a new position, you've been given a new life. In second Corinthians chapter five, it says we are new creatures in Christ. All things have what? Passed away, new things have come. So the way we can live a spiritual life, victorious spiritual life, a resurrected life is recognizing the power of Christ in us. Christ in us, Paul says in Colossians 1, is the hope of glory. Christ in us. You take the glove, you put your hand in it, it comes alive. You take a dead, lifeless man or woman and all of a sudden it comes alive when Christ is in us. And that's how we're able to uproot sin and overcome the things that are there. How do you do that? Look at verse two. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. Set your mind on things. How do you set your mind on things above? Let me ask you a question. What do you think about all week? What do you think about all day? What do you think about all this past weekend? A lot of us were fixated on Harvey and what was going to happen with the storm. Who's going to have, you know, who's going to get flooded? Who's not going to get flooded? Is it coming our way, not coming our way? And many of us were glued to the television for hours. Uh, some of us were watching Brigham Young play Portland State because Brigham Young plays LSU next weekend and want to see if they're any good or not. <laughs> I, I mean, what, what, what is your mind fixed upon? What is your mind fixed upon? How do you set your mind on things above? You set your mind on things above by something you might call a quiet time, spending time in the Word before God. You might call it a devotional life. You set your mind things above because when you get in your car, you can listen to a podcast. You can listen to, to Christian radio. You set your mind on things above because you pull out the scriptures and spend time in it. You set your mind on things above by being in community with other believers where you're in the word together and it sharpens you as iron sharpens iron. So there are many ways to set your mind on things above through worship, through prayer. prayer. It's setting your mind on the things of God. Before I go to bed, before I go to sleep, Bev and I are both reading through the one-year Bible. And so we just finished Nehemiah and now we're in Job. It's depressing to spend a month in Job, to be honest with you, but it's the word of God we're reading through Job. And so you set your mind on things above by saturating your mind with the word of God daily. So what is your mind set on? If you want to live a victorious spiritual life, the resurrected life of Christ, it's because of your, the sufficiency of Christ, Colossians 1 and 2, <clears throat> because of our new position and because of our new life in him. So Paul says... You have this resurrected life, you have this new life, you, you have this, this new position, you, you have the sufficiency of Christ in your life, therefore there's some things you need to get rid of. Some things you need to get rid of. That you, need to, you need to kill, you need to slay, you need to mortify certain things. Look at verse 5. Therefore, when you see a therefore, you see what is therefore, you go back in the context and you're saying, because of the sufficiency of Christ, because of your position in Christ, because of your life in Christ, you need to live a little differently. You need to be living a lot differently. Therefore, and if you have a King James Bible, it says mortify. Who has a King James Bible out there? Let me see your hand. You're way smarter than I am. I can't, I don't understand that King James Bible. Last hour, Mr. Wayne was with us. Mr. Wayne comes on Thursday morning. He's the oldest guy in our Thursday morning Bible study. He was there writing the King James Bible. And, <laughs> and he doesn't understand it. And so, uh, but you know more power too if you understand it. It says mortify. If you have an amplified Bible, it says kill. If you have an NIV or ESV, how many of you have NIV or ESV? That's the majority of you. <clears throat> What's it say there? Put to death. Put to death. 
And so the concept is there's something in your life that needs to be uprooted, something that needs to be killed, something that needs to be done away with. Billy Sunday, uh, and these are sins, and he's going to talk about sins of the appetite and sins of the attitude. Billy Sunday was a baseball player who became an evangelist, and uh, he said this. He said, uh, if we do not whip sin, sin will whip us. If we don't whip sin, sin's going to whip us. John Piper, more current, Sunday was back in the early 1900s, John Piper said this, sin is like a deposed monarch who no longer reigns, nor has the ability to condemn but works very hard to debilitate and devastate all its former subjects. Let me explain that. Sin is like a deposed monarch. That means a ruler who no longer has a nation. He or she has been booted out. They're no longer the king or queen. They're deposed monarchs. They no longer reign. So sin should no longer reign in us, no longer control us. And a deposed monarch doesn't have the ability to condemn, but they can work very hard to debilitate and devastate the former subjects. Satan and sin work very hard to debilitate and devastate us as former subjects. And so Paul says, you've got to slay this stuff. You've got to kill this stuff. You've got to uproot this sin that lies before you. He commands us to kill it, to put it away, not to, not to have it anymore. And you can do that not on your own power, not with your own ingenuity, not with your own strength, but because Christ is alive in you. One author writes these words, can't defeat sin, Christ can, and he's in you. You can't stop drinking, Christ can, and he's in you. You can't stop worrying, Christ can, and he's in you. You can't forgive the jerk, can't forget the past, can't forsake your bad habits, Christ can, and he is alive in you. So who's in control? Are you allowing Christ to reign or sin to reign in your life? One author said, uproot the weed of sin while it's still small. You see, if not, it's going to go deep in your heart and be hard to get rid of. I can't remember what it was. It was a, a few months, a couple of years ago. I can't remember what it was, but uh, I'm out there trying to yank a weed out. And uh, this weed had gone really deep. And uh, I'm not the strongest guy in here, but I'm not the weakest guy in here. And I'm yanking on it. I'll never forget, Bev looked at me and said, uh, you probably should have done it when it was a lot smaller. <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am but what do I do now, Jose? I mean, so that's what he's saying. The taproot goes deep unless you yank it out small. One of the things I pray for myself, friends, is this. God, when I fall into sin, would you give me a tender heart towards that sin, convict me of that sin, and make me a man who repents of that sin? Tender heart, convicted, and repented. Otherwise, that taproot goes deep. And that sin takes a grip in your life. It gets a, it gets a toe hole, it gets a foot hole, and it gets a strong hole. It gets a toe hole, it gets a foot hole, it gets a strong hole. And you don't want to give it up. You want to cling to it like a pit bull on a bone. And he says, you've got to deal with this and you've got to uproot it. And that's great advice. Uproot the weed of sin while it's still small. Then Paul proceeds. He proceeds to give us two sample lists. Sample list of sins we should kill and uproot, and four reasons why we should put these sins to death. So he's going to give us two different sins. And by the way, we've got, to, we've got to look at our sin. We've got to look at our personal sin. As I look at the, the landscape of our culture right now, it seems to me it's very easy to pontificate on the sins of others and not look at our personal sin. We look at the sins of politicians, we look at the sins of groups, we look at the sins of people. 
And, and we point fingers out there, but recognize when you point one finger out there, there are three fingers pointing right back at you. And stuff that's happening in our world is bad stuff. I mean, I look at some of the stuff in recent weeks. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans in the 60s and 70s. I, we, we saw bad stuff, especially in the area of racism, bad stuff. And I say that there's no place in that, in the, in the, it's certainly in the body of Christ, and it's sad when it happens in the culture we live in. And so I look at that and recognize it's real easy to pontificate on the sins of society and others, but I ask you, what about your sin? What about your personal struggles? Because that's what Paul's going to talk about. He's not talking about uprooting other people's sin. He's talking about the sin in your own life. And so look at verse 5. He says, slay the members of your earthly body as being dead to, and then he gives a list. And if you look on the little insert you got when you walked in, I laid out all these words for you. So he says, first of all, slay pornea, immorality, the word pornea in the Greek. We get the word pornography from it. It's a word that we've seen over and over in the scriptures. That refers to any form of illicit sex outside of marriage. It refers to premarital sex. It refers to extramarital sex. It's used in the scriptures to refer to bestiality. It's used to refer to homosexuality, all as sinful behavior. And so we look at that and we recognize Paul is moving, I think, from general to specific here. And then he goes to impurity, akatharsia. Ah, we get the word uh, not from, catharsis is the concept of purity. This is a, a more general term than pornea or moving from, from specific to general. It's a more general term. It alludes to suggestive speech that culminates in physical action. It's when you start throwing out sexual innuendos at work, hoping it leads to something with that other person. It's when you're at school and you start talking about things that you hope culminates in a sexual relationship. That's what we're talking about there. Paul says, you've got to uproot immorality. You've got to uproot impurity. You have to uproot passion and evil desire. You have to uproot greed, which is covetousness, perhaps which is the root cause of all these sins. Now, when I look at the scriptures and I look at these things, I recognize, first of all, Paul's talking here. He's saying, you have to slay. If you look at the outline, you have to uproot these things. And since you've been given a new position and a new life, you slay the sinful behavior. And the first sinful behavior are sins of the appetite, specifically the sexual appetite. And we look at the second group of sins, it's going to be sins that deal with anger. Now, since our culture and society is a, a, a culture and society doesn't struggle with sexual sin or sins of anger, I'm not going to spend much time here. Right. You know, if I were going to make a list of things that our culture struggles with, I would have written Colossians chapter 3. Paul wrote this in about 60 AD. And it really speaks to our culture speaks to where we all are. So here's what I'd like to do. I, I, I'm going to ask you as a married couple, do you see sex as a gift to be enjoyed or a duty to be endured? Is it a thankless chore or a passionate expression of love? Sex is complex yet simple. It's beautiful yet potentially destructive. So I want to address three groups of people. The first group are unmarried folks. So if you're not married, I want to see your hand. You're not married, I want to see your hand up, up there. Okay. So a bunch of you, a bunch of you not married, singles. Some of you are students still, some of you maybe uh, young teenagers, uh, some of you even younger than that. Some of you have been married before, but you're single now. I want to talk to you first. I, I want to encourage you in three ways to live a radical life of purity in an age of rampant impurity. So you ready? Okay, get your pins out or take notes on your devices if you want to do that. Three ways to encourage you. Number one, I, would, I want to encourage you to pure thinking, pure thinking. Secondly, I want to encourage you not to be unequally yoked. And thirdly, I want to encourage you to be committed to purity in your dating relationships. 
So number one, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to pure thinking. If you're single, I want you to say with me, pure thinking. Pure thinking. Say it again. Pure thinking. So to my single folks, pure thinking. As a man thinks, so is he, the scripture says. So what comes into your mind eventually becomes behavior. It becomes your behavior. And so I want to encourage you to think purely. You protect your mind. Paul says, set your mind on things above. I'm convinced that the greatest battle in the spiritual life is a battle for the mind. And so when you battle for the mind, I pray, I pray that you'll set your mind on these things. Steve Farrar in his book, Point Man, says the major battlefield in the spiritual, uh, the spiritual life is the mind. The mind is a line of scrimmage. Whoever controls the line of scrimmage controls the game. The mind where the enemy seeks is where he seeks to control us. If he can influence our minds, he will impact our behavior. As a man thinks, so is he. You're going to carry out that which comes into your minds. And so if you see things as okay and appropriate and you read the wrong stuff, look at the wrong stuff, go to the wrong places and allow your mind to be exposed to that, it eventually becomes part of your behavior. So let me talk to the guys first. Single guys, let me see your hand, just the guys. Single guys. Survey was done, Christian, 50 Christian colleges in America. 80% of the young men who were surveyed on Christian colleges, man, these are places like Mary Harden Baylor, like Moody Monthly, like John Brown, uh, all these types of universities. 80% of the men from those 50 campuses said sometime in the past semester they were involved in the use of pornography. Eight out of 10. It's probably not a shocking statistic to you, it shouldn't be. Because in your hand, you control one of the most powerful devices. Redbox says we can get a two for one today, baby. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> so in your hand is a device, it is a device that gives you access to more stuff than your mind can even begin to imagine. Out of the top 10 most frequent websites on the web, three of them are pornographic websites. That includes Google, Amazon, you start filling in the blanks. Three out of the top 10 most frequent websites on the internet are porn sites. That doesn't surprise a lot of us, but for some of us we're thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So to my young single men and every man, not just single men, the use of pornography will never, never, never keep your mind pure. In fact, it will make you think about things that will never take place in your marriage. It diminishes the woman you're dating and the woman you're married to. To my young sisters out there, how many of you are single ladies, single ladies? You know, as Bev and I have counseled a lot of young ladies recently and, and over the years, a, a life of fantasy through trashy romantic novels, through movies and all this other stuff will allow to come into your mind stuff that is not going to take place, that may not take place in your life. And, and what we're finding as we visit with young couples and young singles is that their mind is filled with thoughts of fantasy that they don't need to be filled with. As a man thinks, so is he. Pure thinking. Or be, uh, uh, yeah, pure thinking. So that's my first encouragement to you. My second encouragement to you. My second, by the way, I saw a bumper sticker in Dallas a couple of years back. It said, I can read your mind and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> See, a lot of us are way more careful about the food we put in our mouth than the trash we put in our mind. And, and that's why we struggle. Second encouragement to those of you who are single. Number one, pure thinking. Number two, not being unequally yoked. Second Corinthians chapter six, take a look at it, verses 14 through 16, write it down, take a look at it, put a note in your device. Second Corinthians six, 14 through 16, it says if you're single, not to be unequally yoked. 
Unequally yoked means you're marrying an unbeliever. Two oxen that are unequally yoked, that they'll go in circles. One will pull stronger than the other, they go in circles. And that's what happens in your life when you marry an unbeliever. We used to tell our kids when they were with us, that if you are an unbeliever, the world is your pearl. You can date who you want, go who you want with, marry who you want. But you become a believer. The scriptures put limitations on you and say not to be unequally yoked. And then we told our son and our daughter, you know what, there are a lot of people who claim to be believers, but they're not living like believers. And so all of a sudden, your, your world becomes a whole lot smaller. That funnel gets a whole lot narrower. Because, I, I, Sarah, I don't want you dating a guy who, just because he goes to church, I want to know uh, where, where, what Bible studies he in, who, who are the guys he's meeting with, and, and tell me about his walk with God and his time in the Word. My young sisters, I pray that you will not fall for a man who only fakes and, and says in vain things to capture your heart that aren't true. And for, for my young brother, same thing to some woman. You're growing in Christ, she'll take you away from Christ if she's not growing in Christ. And so the funnel marrows. And, and you've heard me say many times here, if there's any thirst, anything worse than being single and wanting to be married, it's being what? Married and wanting to be single. Okay? And that's what happens. So my first encouragement to my singles, pure thinking. My second encouragement, don't be unequally yoked. My third encouragement to you is a commitment in your dating relationship to sexual purity. And some of you are saying, Pastor Gary, you're an old man. You're out of touch. You're out of touch. Um, there's nothing wrong with hooking up to see if we're compatible. Nothing wrong with being friends with benefits. Um, there's a lot wrong with it. First of all, disobedience disobedience. Scriptures say in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, you can take a look at it. This is the will of God. We all want to do the will of God. This is the will of God. Abstain from sexual morality. And the word is pornea there. Abstain from sex outside of marriage, period. Now, does God do that because he's a mean old ogre? No, he wants you to have great joy in marriage. Let, let, me, let me tell you, a lot of your students, let me tell you, you will never apologize for your purity, but you will apologize for your impurity. You will never apologize for your virginity, but you will apologize for having lost it somewhere else when God gives you the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with if he does. You're not going to say, oh, babe, I'm so sorry right now. I want you to know I've never been with anybody else. I know that's a problem for you. It doesn't work that way. But you start sleeping around with multiple women or multiple guys, and there's a day when that right man or right woman is going to come into your life, and you're going to be apologizing all over yourself because you didn't live a life of radical purity in an age of rampant impurity. And it's my prayer that you will guard your hearts, guard your minds, and guard your bodies. By the way, my, my, my Christian sister, if you're dating a guy and he says, if you love me, you will, you run. You run. I don't know who invented the, the saying, but somebody did. Men use love to get sex. Women use sex to get love. And so for my Christian brothers here, keep my single Christian sisters pure. For my Christian sisters, keep yourself pure. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's what needs to happen. If you, if you love me, you will. is a terrible statement by anybody. By the way, how far is too far? We're often asked that question. How far is too far? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says this. It says, now concerning these things about which you wrote, it is a, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So Pastor Gary, does that mean we can't hold hands? I mean, what, it says not to touch a woman. Does that mean we can't kiss? Does it mean we can't touch? What does that mean? You've got to come before the Spirit of God and decide what that means in your dating relationship. Some of us, you know, we, we can't stop once we start. And listen to what verse 9 says. If they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. Bev and I moved our wedding up four months because we were burning. <laughs> we're burning. I mean, we, 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 
we were burning. We set some boundaries. We we're getting ready to cross those boundaries. I said, babe, we can't do this. I mean, either I'm going to go off to seminary and you stay back in Baton Rouge. I'm going to go to Dallas or we got to get married. So we moved our wedding up four months. And somebody said, well, you were weak. You're doggone right I was weak. <laughs> I mean, look at that woman. I was weak. I, and I, I've got red hot Italian blood flowing through my veins. I'm madly in love with her and we can't do anything. And it's like, we're getting married. I mean, we're getting married. Her mom about freaked out when we said, hey, we're engaged, we're supposed to get married in December, we're moving it up to September. We did, because it's better to marry than to burn. And uh, we're going to burn. And, and so, some of you said, man, I can't stand when pastor talks like that. Well, <laughs> you ought to be in conferences when our kids are there and we talk like this. And oh, yuck. <laughs> Satan will do everything he can to bring two people together sexually before marriage and everything he can to keep them apart sexually after marriage. Many of you knew here, I've used a saying a thousand times at TBC. It comes from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, if your head's made out of butter, butter don't sit next to the fire. I see a lot of young people out there with butter heads. I see a lot of old dudes with butter heads. I see a lot of women with butter heads. For 36 years, my heart has been broken time after 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 time, after time because of butter heads. Run. There's not a relationship worth tearing up your family for. Build the bridges to mend rather than barriers to run away. So, um, by the way, we have a policy at TBC on marrying. If you're unequally yoked, we're not going to do your wedding. If you've not been biblically divorced, that is by adultery or desertion, we're not going to do your wedding because Scripture don't allow us to do that. If you are living together, we're going to ask you to live apart sexually for three months. If you come to us and ask us to do a homosexual wedding, we're not going to do it. The scriptures are clear. It's sinful and wrong. If you come to me and say, Pastor Gary, Pastor Gary, I'm engaged. And you tell me we're getting married two years from now, I'm probably not going to do your wedding. Okay? And you say, why is that? Because if you're engaged for two years, you're on the take sexually. You are. I mean, I, I mean, it'll be the rare, 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 rare exception. Get married. You're going to burn. You're going to burn. You come to me and tell me, hey, we're getting married two years from now. That's when we could afford to do it. I'm going to talk to you and say, man, either you are wired a whole lot differently than I am, dude. I mean, if you're in love with that woman, you want to be with that woman, you want to spend your life with that woman, and you can stay off of her for two years, you probably don't need to get married because you're not really attracted to that woman. Okay? And uh, scriptures are pretty clear about what needs to happen there. And so I, I look at that, and I, I agree with Martin Triscoll because I'm addressing married men and women. Here's what he says. In our kingdom culture, the culture of Christ, the marriage covenant is sacred and the marriage bed is sensual. The marriage covenant is sacred, the marriage bed is sensual. We speak frankly but not crassly about sexuality. And I'm getting ready to have a frank talk with you, but, but I'm not going to do it crassly. Because if we do not give our people information from the living waters of the scriptures, their thirst will compel them to drink from the toilet of pornography and perversion. So I'm going to talk very plainly for a minute, wrap up with my single folks. Oral sex has the word sex in it. Okay, I asked my youth guys, so what's the biggest issue right there? Well, a lot of our young people think, well, it's okay to have oral sex because it's not intercourse. Words oral sex have sex in it. Stay away from it. Don't burn. Pure thinking. Don't be unequally yoked. And uh, commitment to purity. Some of you think, man, Temple Bible Church, you're, you're brave or stupid to talk about stuff like this. No, we're biblical is what we are. You read the Song of Solomon. You read the New Testament. It talks about this over and over and over and over. 
So to my married men, how many of you guys are married out there? Let me see your hands. Okay, let me see your hands. I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes. I'm going to give you three words, okay? Three words. Listen, listen, listen. Okay? I mean, women can clap. You can clap. That was a lady clapping there. I heard that, okay? Yeah, listen, listen, listen. Most of us as men, what we do is we sit in front of a TV, sit in front of a computer, sit in front of a device, sit in front of a newspaper, sit in front of a, you know, we're dreaming about golf, we're dreaming about killing some deer in the woods, and we don't listen. We don't listen. I mean, guys, let me tell you, your wife looks at you, and she doesn't just say, you can be the most ripped guy in here today. She doesn't look at you and say, you hunk a hunk of burning love, come and have some time with me. But I tell you, when you give her your heart and you listen with your heart, that woos her like nothing else in the world. And you know, I remember years ago, Bev came to me and she said, I'm really tired. I did this, 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 and this. And she gave me a litany of stuff. And uh, I'm a slow learner, guys. I mean, it just takes me a while to catch on. So I looked at her and said, babe, of course you're tired. Look at all you've done. She didn't look at me and say, you marvelous savant you to figure that out. <laughs> I mean, she knew what she had done. What did she want from me? Babe, what did you want from me? Tell me. Tell me I got it right. <laughs> you wanted my heart. She wanted me to understand her. She didn't want me to figure her out and solve her problems. But as men, typically we do, we listen and we want to fix it. There's a great passage in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's a woman who can't, her name's Hannah, she can't bear children. She's crying all the time. She has problems all the time whenever they go to worship. And uh, she turns to her husband and he says, here's your solution. First of all, don't cry. Guys, you ever use that? Don't cry. (laughs) Secondly, you need something to eat. (laughs) And thirdly, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Babe, you got me. (laughs) That was this. Young men, let me tell you something. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work very well that way, I can tell you that. I've learned from multiple failures. And so what we see here is a need for us to listen. So married men, listen. Say that word with me. Listen. Second word, romance. Men, say that with me. Romance. Romance. Come on, guys. Romance. Romance. And you ought to be screaming that right now. So ladies, men spell romance how? We get three brave women. Thank you. Thank you. And the rest of you ladies know it and you just didn't say it, okay? Okay. Men spell romance what, ladies? Yeah, we do. We go to the event. You go to the process, okay? We go to the event. We do. That's, that's romance to us, okay? That's romance for us. Ladies, you're thinking about everything leading up to it. You're thinking about flowers, cards. You're thinking about us doing the dishes, taking out the trash. You're thinking about us listening to you. I mean, romance to you is a process. For us, it's an event. Jenny arrived home from work to find her kids all bathed, a load of laundry in the washer, another one in the dryer, dinner on the stove, the table was set. She was absolutely astonished. Turns out her husband, Ralph, read an article that day that said wives who work full-time and then have to do housework when they get home are too too tired to have passion at night. The night went very well. He continued on. She's telling her co-workers at the office next day, we had a great dinner. Ralph cleaned up the kitchen, told me to go take a long, hot bath and to relax. He helped the kids do their homework, folded the laundry, put all the laundry, and then he put the kids to bed. It was a tremendous evening. And one of her co-workers winked at her and said, but what about afterwards? And she said, oh, that. God is so good. Ralph turned to me and said, babe, I'm too tired. (laughs) 
So guys, take that to heart. Listen, guys, repeat after me. Listen, romance. Third, third word is uh, purity. Three guys said that. <laughs> Men who are married, repeat after me. Listen, romance, purity. I, I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to do everything I can not to cry here. Because I've seen so many marriages break up over impurity. I've got dear brothers, dear friends, who've, who've gotten involved with women they're ma- married to, and it breaks my heart. After 36 years of being here, I could tell you story after story after story. I could parade men up here who could tell you, you know, by God's grace, our marriage has been saved, but it was a battle because of that. Listen to Proverbs chapter five, drink water from your own sister and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water be in the streets, let them be yours alone. He's talking about passion and marriage. Let them be yours alone and not for some stranger. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated with her love. He said, why why, why are you out there sharing yourself with other people? So to my married men out there, if you find yourself attracted to another woman in your neighborhood at work, there's an old song from the 60s that says, get on the bus, Gus, drop off the Keeley and set yourself free. If you've got to sell your house, sell your house. You've got to quit your job, quit your job. You've got to move to another state, you move to another state. If you find yourself being attracted to another woman, you make sure that you get rid of that. You get away from that. And you uproot it, not on your own strength, not like those rednecks in the truck from Mississippi, but you do it because of Christ who's given you a new position, a new life, and he's sufficient for you to slay and uproot that stuff. Amen? So ladies, I got two words for you. You ready? Repeat after me, ladies. Desire. Uh, dress. dress. Come on, ladies. Desire. Desire. Dress. dress. Desire. Okay. Repeat another word with me. <laughs> I missed that one. I, under desire is uh, another word. Initiate. Say that word, ladies. Initiate. Initiate. Say it a little louder. Initiate. Initiate. Two husbands just passed out. Okay. <laughs> Initiate. Ladies, I, I mean... You initiate a passionate relationship with your husband. He's the man that God has given you. He's the man who's chosen to be with you. You initiate, ladies. Now, before you go home and do that, let me give you a little advice. I want you to see your attorney. I want you to change your will and make TBC part of the beneficiary of that. <laughs> because if some of you ladies initiate a sexual relationship with your husband, he's going to die of a heart attack before anything happens. Okay? Desire. Your husband desires you, and he desires for you to be responsive. And he desires for you to initiate passion with him. I'm grateful for a bride who does that. We, 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 we have demonstrated, I mean, we don't do anything stupid in front of our kids, but, but we have demonstrated, we have touched, we love, we kiss, we hug in front of our kids when they were growing our grandkids right now. Our grandkids walk by and go, yuck. <laughs> and I want them to know that I love this woman and she loves me. And if you don't touch, you know, non-sexual touching, Kissing. I, I mean, I, I'm in home sometimes. Guy comes in from the end of the day. One of the things I love about my bride, when I come in at the end of the day, wherever she is, she gets up and she comes and gives me a hug and a kiss. She'll get up from whatever she's doing, meet me wherever I am, and she gives me a hug and a kiss. You know what that makes me feel like? It feels like I'm loved and cared for. I'm the most important thing in the world at that day. Ladies, initiate. Desire. Second is dress. Men are stimulated by sight. 
The scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3 talk about women dressing modestly. And you say, we shouldn't have to worry about what we dress because men are weak. We are weak. And you should worry about it. And you should model it to your daughters and to your granddaughters. And you need to do that for those of us who are part of the body of Christ. Be modest. Scriptures are very clear about it. So for men, my three words to you were listen, romance, and purity. To my ladies, desire, and dress. So that's sins of the appetite. I'm going to finish with sins of the attitude. I'm not going to spend any time here. You can look at the words that have been given here. We live in an angry culture, an angry society. Anger, the word used there, orge, is a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. Wrath is a sudden outburst of anger. It's a temper. You've got a temper. There's some things that need to be uprooted in your life. And then, uh, I mean, James chapter 1 says this. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And in Proverbs 29, it says this regarding anger. It says, a fool gives vent to his anger, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Um, if you're an angry person, always leaving a debris of, of a wake behind you, derogatory speech, you need to uproot some things from your life. Let, let me talk about one other thing, social media. Let me talk about social media. I am embarrassed to see what some of my people post on social media. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to see some of the things that you share on social media. When you recognize the body of Christ has struggles and you begin posting stuff like that, and talking about where you've been and what you've done and getting drunk. We start talking about and throwing stuff out about some of the stuff I've read on racism and, and, and stances on that. It's like, come on, really? I mean, you've got brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Be careful about what you talk about. Be careful about what you post. I mean, you cause other people to stumble on some of that stuff. So why do you do this? I mean, is this just Pastor Gary ranting right now? No, it's not. You uproot, you slay these things. And you do it because you have a new life, a new position, sufficiency of Christ, and you want to look like him. And you do it for four reasons that he mentions in this passage, because it provokes the wrath of God. Look at verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God will come. It's part of your old nature, not your new nature. Verse 7, in them you also formerly walked. You lived according to these things. The end of verse 9, lay aside the old self with its evil practices. It's an opposition to the new nature. Chapter 3, verse 10, having put on this new self, this new you, this new position, this new, this new life, you're being renewed to true knowledge according to the image of the one. Look like the one who you represent, the Imago Dei. And then finally, it causes divisions in the body of Christ when we sin this way. He says there should be a renewal where there's no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is our all in all. He's talking about racial barriers, religious barriers, cultural barriers, and social barriers. When we live this way, we create barriers. When we do not love one another and treat one another and remove cultural barriers, religious barriers, racial barriers, and social barriers, Christ is not our all in all. You know, when our life has changed, we are different. Our new nature produces a changed life. So, ladies, would you join me up here for the final song? Ladies, are going to lead us in amazing grace. Here's what I want to tell you. If you are wrestling with sexual sin and it's reigning over you, it's no longer deposed monarch. If it's reigning over you, you've got to uproot it. And maybe you have to go back and say, do I really know Jesus? And if you are an angry person, always filled with wrath and have a temper that always vents, you need to uproot that stuff if you know Christ, or maybe you need to ask yourself, do I really know Christ? If these things are reigning in your life, young people and old, 
If this controls your life, the first question you have to ask is, do I really know Jesus? Because a changed heart produces a changed life. A new nature produces a changed life. A new life looks differently than the old life. A new position doesn't put us in a position of being like the world anymore. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this great song, Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. And some of you need to be set free this morning. You know you need to be set free. You're living in sin. Some of you slept with somebody you're not married with last night. Some of you got on porn last night. Some of you have so much anger in you right now, you're just raging because you've been hurt. Somebody in the past has been a jerk and they've messed you over and you're filled with bitterness. And maybe they were wrong, but you can't let it go. Here's what I want to do. When we're finishing that last song, you come get on your knees down here. You say, God, I just want to be right. I, I want a heart that is convicted and repentant. Repentant means turn away from. Because I want you to reign in my life, not sin to reign in my life. So we're going to stand and sing, you make your way down, get on your knees. Allow those chains to be dropped when we sing about those things being dropped this morning. And I'll come and lay my hand over you, maybe an elder if there's a bunch of you, my wife. And we're just going to pray for you while you're up there. So let's sing together. If you want to come down here and get right with God, you do that. Chains are gone, I've been saved.
dozens of folks down here being released and being freed. And my prayer is for those of us who are there bold enough to do that, that today, the need in our life, we won't leave this place without it. So, Father, we honor you and all your goodness and all your grace. In Christ's name, amen. amen.